Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at CAMH. .ca/canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Garth Mullins, host of the excellent podcast Crackdown. Hello. Hey Jesse, good to be here. Garth, today we're going to talk about Pierre Polyev on drugs, the conservative leader's compassionate plan to murder thousands of drug users. Also, why won't the spies just tell us exactly what's going on? The confusing and contradictory CSIS intelligence on China and on the Freedom Convoy. Welcome to Shortcuts, Garth, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks. Good to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by Chris Baragar, Steve Crow, Tarlacan Diol, Stuart Seeley, Magda Sulzicki, Allison Murray, Russell McGorman and Jody. I'm Jody, a student in Victoria, BC, and I appreciate Canada Land for how it exposes and critiques mainstream media in Canada. Garth, I want to start by talking about this video that conservative leader Pierre Polyev posted this past weekend. Garth, the caption of the video reads, everything feels broken, but we can fix it. We're going to play the audio, but can you tell people what you see if you were watching this video? Oh, yeah. This is a part of the city I know really well. It's Crab Park. It's right down in the port in Burrard Inlet. I guess uh, Polyev is set up, uh, you know, probably on a log or a rock near the beach there or a bench. And uh, in the background, you can see he's used as as almost like set, set deck or something, uh, a tent encampment. And he's sort of dressed down. He's kind of wearing his felice or something. And there's sort of like an old-timey film grain filter with like, you know, little bits of dust and scratches running. But, you know, he's right there with this tent city behind him. And, and this is what he says. Do you ever feel like everything's broken in Canada? I mean, here we are. Most beautiful place in the world. Beautiful British Columbia. The Pacific. The Vancouver skyline. And another tent city. In that tent city are people hopelessly addicted to drugs, putting poisons in their bodies. They've probably lost their homes, their families, 
they've lost control of their lives and they might lose their lives altogether. Just today we learned that British Columbia is on track to have over 2,000 drug overdose deaths this year alone. That is a 300% increase from 2015 when Justin Trudeau took office. These are Canadian citizens who are losing their lives. They could be your sister, your brother, your daughter, your son. They could even be your parents. This can happen to anyone. So right away, Garth, this struck me as something very different than what you might expect from a conservative politician when discussing a drug crisis. I mean, I've come to expect, like, if you're going to see images of drug users, grainy footage of addicts slumped in alleyways with with a voiceover talking about how everything's going to hell in a handbasket, we need to clean up our streets and get tough on crime and take the streets back from the criminals. But this is like Pierre Polyev striking a very compassionate note. Uh, he, he is talking about drug users with empathy. He goes on to say that a lot of these people, they started taking opioids because they were prescribed to them. He, he talks about how this could be your family member. I mean, th- this is a level of understanding and, yeah, empathy that uh, I don't think we have heard from somebody like Pierre Polyev before. But then listen to this. The addictions that we see that have terrorized these people and our communities, they are the result of a failed experiment. This is a a deliberate policy by woke, liberal, and NDP governments to provide taxpayer-funded drugs, flood our streets with easy access to these poisons. Uh, This has been tried, not just in Vancouver, but in places like Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and always with the same results. Major increases in overdoses and a a massive increase in crime. Here in Canada, under Justin Trudeau, we've not only had this 300% increase in overdose deaths uh, in British Columbia, but across Canada, violent crime has increased by 32%. We should have expected this because every time this experiment has been tried, it has resulted in exactly the same outcome. Garth, Pierre Polyev just blamed the opioid epidemic on safe supply. And he seemed to provide a bunch of stats and numbers to back up that argument. What can you tell us about that? I mean, I've long been an advocate for safe supply since way before the word existed. You know, and this is the concept that In truth, people are dying from contaminated illicit street drugs because we don't know what's in them and we don't know how potent the constituents are. And so if you replace that with a pharmaceutical alternative or something of known constituents and known potency, you reduce the overdose fatalities overnight. This is kind of well understood now. All right. Well, we heard Pierre Polyev with this counterfactual argument that uh, safe supply is, in fact, what's causing the opioid epidemic, what is causing the deaths. We can't state this enough. This is not two opposing arguments. This is a lie and then the truth. The video lies. There is no substance to back up. And I want to actually get to the specific stats that he uses in the video in a little bit. But let's continue with this piece of propaganda. We know that Pierre Polyev blames the situation on safe supply falsely, but that's what he blames it on. What's the solution? If Pierre Polyev were prime minister, how does he propose that we fix it? There are solutions. We know what works. Um, First and foremost, 
We need to put the resources into bolstering our borders to keep the precursor ingredients that go into making these drugs out of the country. Second, we need to bring in tougher laws for the violent reoffenders and the gangsters and organized criminals who are preying upon these addicts. And finally, and most importantly, we need to stop using tax dollars to fund dangerous drugs under the so-called and ironically named idea of safe supply. There is no safe supply of these drugs. They are deadly, they are lethal, and they are relentlessly addictive. Giving people more of these drugs will not free them from their addiction. It will only lead to their ultimate death, as we have seen over the last several years that it has been tried here in Vancouver. Instead, we should put that money into recovery and treatment, De detox programs that bring uh, the addict into a facility, help them remove the poisons from their bodies, give them counseling, and help them fix the problems, the underlying psychological problems that got them addicted in the first place. This treatment has been proven to work. In Alberta today, they've managed to cut overdose deaths by almost half by getting people into recovery. It's possible, there is hope to give people back control of their lives. Okay, that's a whole fire hose of bullshit there. So let's uh, get the buckets out and start sifting. <laughs> um, I'll go backwards. What Polyev is doing is kind of a piece of classic propaganda that starts with something that feels and and really is very true. Like the, the compassion, I think it's it's good to be compassionate to people. But also right at the beginning, the, the video is called Everything Feels Broken. And everything does feel broken. I mean, let's face it, everything is broken. But then you get the pivot, the bait and switch. And uh, this is where the monkey business starts, you know, is the idea that uh, woke governments have flooded the streets with taxpayer funded drugs in L.A. and Portland and all this list of cities, including Vancouver. Well, I'm here to tell you there is no flood of taxpayer funded drugs in any of those cities, including Vancouver. So this is just false. And I can show you the stats that the, the, our own government chooses to use. Maybe 100,000 people in British Columbia have had some contact with the health system such that the government understands them to be daily opioid users. And I would be one of those people in that statistic. And then of those people, that doesn't include people who use drugs uh, recreationally just on the weekend who have never sought help for it, whatever. So there's many hundreds of thousands of people in BC that are probably, you know, in the bullseye of the overdose crisis, you know, susceptible to death by overdose. And of that large number, a few thousand have been able to get prescriptions, often for short periods of time, for a distant cousin to uh, the drugs they're looking for, a distant cousin to, you know, uh, heroin or fentanyl or whatever, called hydromorphone. And uh, that's better than nothing, but that is not the streets flooded with taxpayer-funded woke heroin. Like, there's no Marxist woke heroin here in Vancouver, I'm here to tell you. Two other things that, that he said in that thing were crackdown on the borders. Let's have more interdiction on the borders and tougher laws. And those two things are really part of what got us here in the first place. You know, in Vancouver, before there were modern anti-drug laws in Canada, in 1907, people smoked opium. And then police started arresting people who manufactured and then people who used opium. It became an illegal market. So producers had to find something that was smaller, uh, more bang for the buck, easier to, you know, smuggle around. 
And so we got to like morphine, heroin, China white, and eventually fentanyl and now benzodope and other stuff. The more the police chase the illicit supply, the more they force the people in the supply chain to innovate and to find things that they don't have to transport all around the world that they can make in a local lab without going across a border or things that are smaller and more potent. They call this the iron law of prohibition and you could see it acting in alcohol prohibition. Before alcohol prohibition, everyone drank beer and wine. Alcohol prohibition comes in, bootleggers are making moonshine because uh, it's a much smaller by volume and bigger bang for the buck. This always happens. So his ideas are gonna make it worse. Only with opioids, it's by an order of magnitude because, you know, the relationship of alcohol volume between beer and spirits is one thing. The potency of fentanyl and what's the other one called? They got that other one now? Uh, benzodope. It's benzodiazepines creeping into the fentanyl as well. There's like carofentanyl or something? Like, yeah, there's that too. These yeah. are like thousand times. The purpose of these synthetics is that they are impossible to stop at the border because they're, you could, like one envelope can have an incredible supply of this. So here, I'm actually going to provide more statistics to the country. Like, we can't state enough how false the information in that video is. And to his credit, uh, Globe and Mail columnist Gary Mason, who I rarely agree with, uh, had uh, an excellent column contradicting everything in that Pierre Polyev video. What is the cause of this opioid crisis and all these overdoses? Is it Justin Trudeau? Is it woke governments? Is it safe supply? No, it's fucking fentanyl. Fentanyl is detected in almost 86% of illicit drug deaths. 10 years ago, before fentanyl was as big of a deal, it showed up in less than 5% of drug deaths. So we've gone from like 200 deaths per year before fentanyl in BC alone, and it's over 2,000 now. It's a fentanyl epidemic. The overdose epidemic is a fentanyl epidemic. And it's an illicit fentanyl epidemic. Yeah. Prescription fentanyl doesn't have the same dangers associated as illicit street fentanyl. It's not knowing what you're getting and how strong it is and that that strength can change from batch to batch or hit to hit. That's what makes it killer. So then we get into safe supply and safe supply we have statistics about as well and also safe injection sites. So when people overdose, 41,000 of them have had their overdoses reversed at these safe injection sites or safe sites since 2017 alone. Not one person has died at a safe injection site. 56% of the overdose deaths that have occurred have happened in private residences. When Polyev points to Alberta and suggests that they've cut off the supply of safe supply and that has cut overdose deaths by half, that, that's, that's a lie as well. There are thousands of people in Alberta who are still provided with free doses of opioids to reduce their drug cravings. You know, Jesse, we got so deep into this, and I just think we should say one of the key lies is that people die from safe supply. We've said they're obviously dying from street fentanyl and street dope, but we're not the only people who are saying this. I'm not the only person who's saying it. The BC Coroner Service, who has toxicologists and pathologists who work on our bodies after we're dead and test what was in them, have said in their death panel report that they are not finding evidence of safe supply prescribing as being the thing that killed the person. And so do the Centers for Disease Control. So I don't know if we have an epidemic of like woke pathologists in British Columbia that Pierre Polyev has to clean up when he's prime minister, but I kind of don't think so. Garth, you know a lot about opioids and about this crisis. Oh, hell yeah. I know a little bit uh, about the media and I want to look at this piece of media here. It's an extraordinary political video. You know, Polyev, like, it's incredible that you could say things that are just this counterfactual, that, that are demonstrably false. He, he says that giving people safe supply will only lead to their ultimate death. 
the opposite of that is the truth. And he knows that. Some people are saying, oh, he's got to do his research, and that's giving him way too much credit. I think we have to be really clear-eyed about this and about why this video is so effective. This video that begins with this plea for compassion that he's going to save the lives of these addicts behind him. Keeping drug users alive is not his goal. His problem is not that drug users keep dying. It's that they're living, that they're standing there behind him, suffering, visible, taking up space. And that is what he's communicating to his viewers, viewers who are no longer going to be receptive to a let's lock these people up argument alone because, you know, we've seen dope sick and it has crept into our families, this epidemic. You have to at least have a feint of compassion here. But what he really is saying, ultimately, his goal is about cleaning up the streets, taking back the streets, throwing these bums in jail or speeding up their deaths. And he's found an ingenious way to push that agenda, which is by pretending to care about them. I'm speaking about Polyev very differently than listeners have heard me speak about him before. You know, people who listen to the show have heard me be amused by Pierre Polyev. Like when he went on a bunch of crypto podcasts, I was amused by how ingenious that was. What a great way to signal to lots of little micro niche communities that you are on their side and you get them without embracing their worst opinions. It's just kind of random crypto. It was a way to reach those people without having to get near some disgusting politics. I have been impressed by Pierre Polyev and his use of social media, Mm -hmm. his metamorphosis into an inspirational leader, these videos of his rallies and him giving his wife a piggyback ride while people on the left still see him as this like arrogant twerp. His base, his growing base, is seeing him very differently, and I'm watching him masterfully use social media to do that, and I'm I'm really interested in how people use media. So I have been not disgusted, you know, of trying to be amused. I'm fucking terrified right now because if this guy becomes prime minister, which I think there's a very good chance he will, you know, I was never afraid that he's going to get rid of fiat currency and replace it with crypto, but I'm like certain that he would do what he's threatening to do with drug policy. Like for sure he would do that. For sure he would cut off safe supply. So he's he's determined to kill a lot of people. Me too. I mean, I have been sending up warnings in my community about a sort of a hard turn to the law and order right that's going on. It's happening in the Vancouver election. It's the framing of public safety, right? I mean, like, let's be clear, everyone deserves to feel safe, right? But there's a sort of a narrow conception of public safety. When when he says everyone feels unsafe or everything's broken, then he sort of turns. It's not the fact that we're, you know, hundreds of us died in 2021 from climate change emergencies in British Columbia or toxic drugs or the pandemic or that uh, – really the tents are behind him, not because of safe supply, but because rents in Vancouver are an average of 2,500 bucks a month and no one can afford a house. So you live in a tent. I mean, it's Occam's razor has to play in at one point, but all of these people, all of these uh, people that are affected by all the things I just listed don't feel safe. And in fact are, are dying. And so public safety, if we really want to embrace it means radically different things than he's saying. But what him and a lot of people on the right are doing is turning us all away from what they call progressive woke policies towards a harder old school conservatism. And then let's just examine what we mean by (laughs) progressive woke policies. There is not, like I'm saying, there's not like woke pathologist or Marxist heroin in Vancouver. There is 
incrementalism, anemic incremental pilot projects here that have only reached a very few people and in Alberta and other places, a very, very small slice of uh, the people who could be potentially overdosing. And the right has looked at them and said, ha ha, look, you've done this huge thing. You've changed the whole world. And these are just small pilots, right? So the incrementalism in the political center is used as propaganda on the political right. So we get two arguments. We said, oh, you've tried it. You've tried safe supply everywhere in all these cities all over the place for years. It doesn't work. People die. Well, that's bullshit. Or you've tried it and it doesn't work. (laughs) And the, the, the people die or it doesn't work are the arguments. And then they get to wipe their hands and say that all that's over when they get in power, when it never even really got a chance to start. Uh, so I am worried that the next prime minister is going to be Pierre Polyev. I'm worried about more right-wing governments coming. The war on safe supply is part of that. And Pierre Polyev has put himself at the helm of it. And he's been the best articulator of that argument. But he's by no means the first person to say it. Jason Kenney was a big proponent. The UCP government in Alberta was big. There are other players in all places, including British Columbia, a whole bunch of doctors that hate the idea. You watch that video and you just think, Oh, wow, man, that seems true. You know, if you don't have time like me to spend in the in the weeds on drug policy, just going to work, picking up your kids, whatever, you don't have time. You're just like, well, I hope someone cares about those people. And that sounds like he is. That sounds nice. You know, I am worried about that. You know, the media has responded to this video in uh, like kind of a uniquely laudable fashion. I have not read one piece that is supportive of it. And I've seen some encouraging responses in how stories have been constructed. So it's it's great to see opinion pieces just refuting this. And Gary Mason wrote one in The Globe and Chris Selly wrote one in The National Post. Like The National Post. If anywhere is going to support Polyev, it should be The National Post. <laughs> but I've seen some really interesting reporting. Here's a story uh, from The Globe and Mail. Former Harper advisor denounces Pierre Polyev drug policy unveiled in video. Mm-hmm. Okay. Benjamin Perrin, law professor at the University of British Columbia, Uh, gets called by the Globe and Mail and gives an interview. He was the former public safety and justice advisor to Stephen Harper. That is a really smart way of contradicting this because we know that certain newspapers or pundits are going to be always contrary to Polyev. But a Harper advisor saying, this is a dangerous counterfactual argument. That's what we need to be hearing. We also got coverage of what Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, she responded, and that got coverage as well. It's totally irresponsible. But since 2017, 41,000 overdoses have been reversed in the safe consumption sites. This is, this is hugely important. So between media and politics, the people who actually know the facts of this are quick to contradict Polyev. But Polyev is running a campaign against the media and against Trudeau's government and even when necessary against his own political establishment. He's been able to effectively position himself as a rebel within conservatism, even though he was uh, one of Harper's boys. So I don't think it matters a whit to the people who connect with this video that there is a united front of like fact and sense and contradiction because he's just really good at this. And this is a video that speaks to the people who live in cities where they feel blighted by tent cities and they feel like they can't go downtown to certain streets and they don't want to feel like a bad guy. And he's given people permission to get behind policy 
that is really just going to be about scooping people up from these streets and bashing down these tent cities and putting them in far more dangerous situations under the guise of caring for them. I mean, it's pretty difficult, right? Because you have two political strains here. One that's saying everything's broken, which is Polyev, and the other, which is the governments in the center saying, well, everything's fine or we're doing the best we can. And that feels so hollow. So, of course, it's very attractive to people to hear that message. And, I mean, he's not just running against Trudeau and the media. He's running against reality. He is right in that everything is broken and that we have fought the governments in the center to try and get reforms on the drug war. But we're still dying in record numbers. And so the fact that they can't show, the, the governments in the political center cannot show progress on the mass deaths leaves them really open to criticism. And frankly, I'm the first critic who's up. But Polyev would make things way worse. Uh, if his program was implemented, we'd see massive increases in those numbers. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Garth, we try to duly note stories that people should know about. May I go first? Please. When Tashina Burnett and Jamar Morrison entered Ontario's child welfare system, what they needed was compassion and help healing. Did you get help? No, I got medication. At group homes run by a for-profit company called Hats Off, they and other kids say they were over-medicated. I want to let people know about a story from Global News, who seem to be doing a lot of really interesting investigations. This was a story about what happens within Ontario's child welfare system. And this was an expose into Hats Off and a couple of other group homes about how kids are like wildly over-medicated when they go into the child welfare system. So these private companies are responsible for these kids who are often traumatized and have psychological problems, 
But what this report reveals is that they are like having these perfunctory little dip-ins with psychiatrists uh, who do not do anything by way of talk therapy. Over 20 people who either worked at these homes or were in them describe this as like pill pushing. They were over-medicated. And these kids are given psychotropics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, sedatives, stimulants, antipsychotics. They're physically bound. And it sounds like they're just sort of like kept in this like very hazy, fucked up state in their adolescence until they're out of these group homes. There's a lot to this and it's really concerning. And these are vulnerable people who we should be giving a damn about. I know how much goes into these investigations and like you kind of work for months and then you release it and you hope that, you know, there's no major world event competing with your story so that it actually gets traction. You hope people actually pay attention. So I do want to duly note this story Check it out. Like a zombie, Ontario group home chain accused of over-medicating kids in care from Global News. I mean, duly noted, but like how much more of these really critical functions are we just going to leave to the private sector and just let them be lightly regulated or unregulated and hope for the best? I mean, this just happens again and again, you know, duly noted. What do you have, Garth? I have an article from Press Progress, and it says police across Canada are hiring a tech company to justify bigger budgets and battle social services. Helpseeker, a Canada-based social impact firm, has been hired to produce reports for police in Edmonton, Vancouver, and Ottawa. So this story, I guess, came last week, November the 17th. And uh, before that, I happened into the lobbying record for Helpseeker from the Alberta Lobbyist Registry. And we started to see all these police forces on it, you know, like a a half a dozen or a dozen police forces and government agencies in cities across Canada. And Vancouver had just seen the release of a report saying that our social service, our social safety net was overfunded and uncoordinated and a mess. And it was produced uh, by Helpseeker for the Vancouver police. So this is the Vancouver police like reaching way out of their lane and saying, uh, look at all these things that go to not the police budget and how terrible they are. And of course, uh, people parsed the math on the report and found that all kinds of things, the whole you know, province and the kitchen sink got thrown into um, add up to some a very large number. People reported on it. Rob Shaw is kind of like a work of fiction. And so seeing this happening in other cities shows to me that police are particularly this year, it seems, are coming out of doing backroom politics and doing main stage politics. Like a police here and in Ottawa, at least those are the two that I know of, police associations backed mayoral candidates that won. And now those mayors are going on to expand police budgets and hire, they both promised 100 more cops in each city. So police just sort of saying, screw it, you know, we're, we're political now, is a real turn. And it seems it seems to be something that's happening in a lot of places. I don't know how they coordinate that or when they all decide, but um, that's what I'm seeing. Duly noted. I want to duly note that it is still crowdfunding time here at Canada Land, and we're, we're getting to the end of it. And we're not going to get there. Uh, we had a very strong start, but based on the momentum right now and how we're doing each day, we're not going to reach our goals. Um, That could change. That could change if people listening right now pitch in. If you've been thinking about it, now is the time when we need it. And, you know, I I really don't want to make any kind of like guilting, arm-twisting moral argument. This is a practical matter. If you support the media that you like, you're going to have options that you like. 
available to you. And if you don't, you know, you won't. And uh, when you look at all of the purchases that you do, digital subscriptions every month to companies that you kind of don't even like, are there any Canadian content companies in that list of companies that you're giving money to for content? I mean, we're a little bit different. You don't have to give us the money to get the content. You know, we give it away for free, but it is a practical thing. You know, you won't lose access to it immediately if you don't uh, pay for it. But if we can't hit our goals overall, then a company like this can't sustain. And so I'm asking you to go to canadaland.com slash join. I'm asking you to click the link on your show notes. How we do this month is going to determine how many stories we're able to cover, how well we thrive and sustain and pay journalists for the content that they provide. So please go to canadaland.com slash join, click the link in the show notes, just do it now and we can get there. While I'm talking about money, Garth, I know that Crackdown, you do such incredible work and you have a Patreon that uh, people should consider supporting as well uh, because uh, the podcasts you're putting out there are unlike any coverage of this crisis that people are going to hear. Just such urgent, interesting, gripping journalism. And uh, it's absolutely changed the way that I think about this issue and uh, definitely deserves people's support as well. Thanks, Jesse. We're at patreon.com slash crackdown pod. Garth, it can be hard work to read the news. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why a lot of people don't. (laughs) It's like my job to read the news. And there are these two stories that like, like, I don't know how anybody is expected to know what the fuck is going on with these two stories. Okay. It should not be this hard. The information that we are getting in these two stories is contradictory. It does not make sense. And both of these stories are about CSIS and the prime minister's office. Let's start with the first one. We talked about this on the show last week. Sam Cooper, Global News, another Global News investigation, bombshell investigation from Sam Cooper. Sources within CSIS who told Sam Cooper that 11 federal candidates in the last election were funded by China. China had infiltrated our system and a quarter of a million dollars got funneled by an Ontario MPP into these 11 federal candidates. And the prime minister knew about this last January. He was briefed about this, said Global News. And last week on the show, I said, holy shit, who are these candidates? Did any of them win? Did they know that they had been infiltrated? Did they know they were getting money from Beijing? What are we going to do about this? Huge story. That story came out on November 7th, and on November 8th, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau responded to it, and he said, yeah, unfortunately, we're seeing countries, state actors from around the world, whether it's China or others, playing aggressive games with our democracies. Now, that sounded like confirmation to me of the global story, like, yeah, this is fucking happening, and he he promised that we're taking significant measures to strengthen the integrity of our elections and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, he's getting pressure from opposition to find out and name who these 11 people were. Look, dude, you were you were informed about this last January. Who are these candidates? We want their names and we want to know what you did when you found out about this. Mr. Speaker, the government is refusing to answer a very simple question. Who are the 11 election candidates who in the 2019 election received hundreds of thousands of dollars funneled by Beijing through its Toronto consulate. Yesterday, the Prime Minister talked to President Xi about these 11 candidates, but the government and the Prime Minister has yet to tell this House who these 11 candidates are. What are they hiding? 
That's where the story was last time I looked at it. And then this week, here's what Trudeau says. I do not have any information, nor have I been briefed, on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. Like a completely emphatic denial. Like I knew nothing about this. And there's like a little task force committee set up to look into this. And Elections Canada says, yeah, no, the last federal election was totally clean. We don't, we don't know anything about any foreign interference. What are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to make of this? Garth, I'm asking you. Uh, What's the answer? Sorry, I, I thought that you were just posing a rhetorical question to no, the world. No, I expect world. you to um, know the answer. What, what, what the hell's going on here? Garth, tell me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. As an organizer for various social movements, I've been sort of on the wrong side of CSIS and the PMO before. So whose side do you take in something like that? I mean, I don't – I can't tell you that. <laughs> I mean, this is serious stuff. If Trudeau is telling the truth and the basic – like the lead of the story that Trudeau was, was briefed about this last January, if that's false – that is a pretty big meatball hanging out there for Sam Cooper. Like, were you spun by CSIS? Are you misinforming us knowingly? Did somebody else get to you? What the hell's going on here? Pressure's on him to prove his story. But it's also really strange that Trudeau initially seemed to be confirming the story. And there is a bad track record when this prime minister has been revealed by investigative journalists to be involved in this scandal or that, whether it's SNC-Lavalin or We Charity, his early statements are usually these like blanket denials that turn out to be very, very carefully worded evasions of the truth. And the stories have turned out to be accurate and Trudeau has turned out to be just sort of, you know, trying to kind of chart a path around them. In this case, his denial seems like pretty holistic. Like, I have no information about this at all. I'm just completely flummoxed by what actually might be going on here. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, if you're going to bullshit the public, get a camera and Polyev's crew and set up down at Crab Park. Seems to be the way that it works best. Here's another one. Last week on this show, I talked about how we were learning from the inquiry into the Emergency Act that CSIS was like just totally undercutting the PMO's justification for invoking the Emergencies Act. Like CSIS, we learned, had told the prime minister that the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa did not meet the definition for a national security threat. CSIS was not afraid of terrorist violence from this occupation, but they were concerned that if the prime minister invoked the Emergency Act, that could divide and radicalize, spark terrorist violence, and create a national security threat. So like, they didn't specifically say, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, don't use the act, but that was pretty strongly suggested by what our listeners heard last week. And that was all reported correctly. Like that is what, what was heard of that inquiry. But then check the news this week and the head of CSIS, David Vigneault, takes the stand at the inquiry, gives his testimony and flips the script entirely. Turns out he advised Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that the federal government should invoke the Emergencies Act to end the Freedom Convoy protest. He said that, yes, it's true that this doesn't meet their legal definition of a national security threat, but there are other definitions of a national security threat that this does meet. And given that, the prime minister should do it. And 
National security expert Wesley Work uh, provided written commentary, and he said that, like, the CSIS director was making a real pretzel argument. It is very difficult on the face of it to understand. I agree. I'm befuddled and perplexed by this as well. Like, it's manna from heaven for the Trudeau government. Like, finally, somebody is backing up their move. Like, everybody else was leaving them hanging out to dry, and now they have a justification. Again, I just don't know what to make of this. I mean— when I was watching the stuff in February, you know, I was just in Vancouver, but I was watching it on TV and, and live streams and stuff, you know, the occupation, whatever you call it, um, and, and the declaration of the Emergencies Act. You know, I don't know how all this stuff works between all these different agencies and whatever, but the real emergency didn't seem to be the people in Ottawa. It seemed to be the people in Ottawa who <laughs> were paid as cops, the people in Ottawa who were from the security establishment or were serving or or former cops and people who played roles in securing the state. And the fact that those people were joining the convoy movement, were throwing in and carrying water and sometimes carrying diesel, literally, for the convoy movement, that was your emergency. That's your national emergency. When the security apparatus of the state is defecting from the state to the other team, that there's no greater threat to any state in any history when than when that happens. That's when alarm bells go off. And to me, I'd be interested in seeing the part of this uh, emergency act inquiry that goes into that, that looks at what happened there in the same way that that's really important in the January 6th uh, hearings and all that in the U.S. It's a narrative that I don't think is happening enough, although there was reporting at the time on who was giving strategic advice on intelligence leaking from police forces. There was plenty of reporting that showed, because that's where I found out about it in the regular mainstream press, um, the great uh, adherence and influence of serving and former police and security officials in that movement. Dude, you said a mouthful right there. I mean, that really is it, isn't it? I mean, here we are talking about, in both of these stories, who knew what, when, when did the prime minister know about this stuff? Who told him what to do? Like, And we're not actually looking at the fact that police were colluding and giving information and the fact that like, you know, any justification, there's like a legal justification that you need to prove for the Emergency Act, which is sort of a separate matter from like... The Emergency Act does not contemplate cops just like having the power to clear a protest but refusing to do so because they like the protest, you know? Well, exactly. I mean, I've been involved in uh, plenty of protests in my life, and we have gotten brutally cleared after minutes or in some cases an hour or two. There was none of this three weeks. And of course, they had a logistical infrastructure that dwarfed anything I've been involved in, the convoy people. You know, they really... Uh, hats off to them because they supplied themselves and dug in really well. But also they were, you know, it's just a matter of towing or whatever, just enforcing the law. I mean, from a criminalized community of drug users, we see how police can enforce the law very zealously and tremendously powerfully. You know, it's like we're, <laughs> we're not asking for anything special, but I've never seen police join in any movement that I've been a part of and take selfies and be friendly. It's just that's the emergency. That's the problem. That's what we need to get into because that threat hasn't gone away. That's the matter at hand. Both of these stories, let's get to the bottom of the police indifference and cooperation. If you want a prime minister who's going to say, look, let's actually like, I don't want to play this game about like what I was briefed on and was I really briefed or what's a briefing even mean? Like, is China infiltrating our democracy? Because like, it seems like I've said that they are. Like Trudeau has said that. So in what way? Who? Like, just like actually level with us instead of like trying to cover your ass. And same with this story. Like, these are serious matters and you want like a frank 
reckoning with what actually happened and what's going to be done about it as opposed to like, I don't know, everything going through this filter of like the political calculation of how to avoid like, you know, Trudeau was pretty much on side with doing something about Chinese interference until the questions were on him about like, what did you do when you first found out about this? And then suddenly he didn't know anything. So yeah, I agree. We've lost the plot on the Emergencies Act to some extent here. Like the real questions have sort of gotten lost in the mix here. And that's Shortcuts for this week. Thank you for joining me, Garth. Sweet. Thanks, Jesse. Listen, we're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I want to ask uh, journalists for something. We have an annual thing we do called Christmas in the Newsroom where we collect stories from those of you who have uh, been forced to sit in a newsroom over the holidays, whether it's Christmas or New Year's, and uh, just what happened? What was it like? Um, get in touch. Uh, we have sort of this like growing file of amusing stories of when nothing happened, of when things happened. If you think we might be interested in your story of Christmas or the holidays in a newsroom, we will be interested. Jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything you send. Garth, where can people find you? I'm uh, on Twitter at Garth Mullins. Don't, I don't know how Mastodon works yet, but I have an account no there. No one's on Mastodon. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> This episode's produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pruel. Theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support our company. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, Early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But more than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. <laughs>